Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive of the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's RSA online event. It's great to have the chance to talk today to an old friend of mine, uh, John Keane. We, we, kind of, we worked together about 20 years ago, uh, which was uh, fun. And John, you don't seem to have changed at all in the intervening time. John is Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney and at the WZB Social Science Centre in Berlin and Director of the Sydney Democracy Network. He's speaking to us um, from Sydney. John has written and researched widely on democracy. He's written some fantastic the important books on democracy and the threats it faces, the future of global institutions, politics of China and the Asia-Pacific region, amongst many other topics. I've been reading over the last few days, I've been completely gripped by his new book, uh, The New Despotism, which explores the anti-democratic practices and tools deployed by governments across the world that threaten the ideals, the customs of power, sharing democracy. But, but his book, isn't a simple read if you think that you can divide the world up into good guys and uh, bad guys. So John, how on earth we're gonna contain this conversation in 30 minutes is, is beyond me, but let's just start very briefly by, um, we are in very different positions, John, you and I. I'm in Britain, which has arguably got the worst record, one of the worst records in the world in containing coronavirus and reducing uh, deaths. You're in one of the places in the world that has done it Best. Now, given your reflections on democracy and government, why has Australia done so well? And what does that tell us about effective governance? Uh, Matthew, uh, great to talk. Uh, the short answer is that those countries, those contexts that suffered uh, or have a record of democracy failure are typically um, the places where uh, this pestilence has actually ravaged uh, sections of the population and brought a lot of misery to millions of people. Um, at one end of the spectrum is Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand, and I think Australia can be added to the mix where um, there was very quick action uh, to, uh, to deal with the pestilence, Borders were locked down, uh, rules were put into place. Um, there was very clear messaging by political leaders. And that ha actually has improved the level of trust. It's actually reversed a long trend in each of those uh, countries for a decline of trust in, in, uh, in politicians. And open government, you know, being honest about um, the dimensions of the pestilence, uh, what we know and don't know about um, COVID-19, all of that put together and coordinated government. In Australia, we have the first ever uh, national cabinet. It's a, it's a consortium of uh, state premiers, the territory uh, leaders, and the prime minister. And of course, there's a lot of open politics in, in that national cabinet. But the result has been um, that the society feels, uh, and it's true for the other countries, it feels that they want actually this pestilence to pass. They're, they're, they're going to, they, they've um, demonstrated a great deal of solidarity and trust in government. Um, at the other end of the spectrum 
is very clear is I'm afraid Britain and I'm afraid the United States where we have developing, uh, you know, something like a quadruple uh, crisis, a democracy failure that is of course to do with the pestilence, but it's also to do with the stagnation that has uh, been an endemic part of that political economy. Uh, a deep disaffection with parties and politics, especially among young people, that's the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. And I would say as well, uh, a decline of the United States. Uh, so there's a geopolitical source of this democracy failure where um, the United States is struggling to come to terms with the emergence of uh, China as a global power. Put all that together um, with a lot of um, uh, fake news being circulated from the presidency, now heavy handed violence, uh, disjunction between states and the federal level. I mean, it's grist to the mill of those in China who say, pointing to the United States, that one would never want uh, a, a democracy, uh, an electoral democracy of that kind. And that's, um, I think, one of the misfortunes of this, this uh, crisis that affects us all. So that's a long-winded answer to um, try to say, uh, Matthew, that actually democratic accountability in handling crises is really, really important. And there can be equitable uh, resolutions of a crisis. When there's a lack of democratic accountability, then, um, then uh, people are pushed aside and um, inequality grows, uh, the nastiness of life um, uh, uh, takes uh, deeper root, and so on. So one of the, I mean, this puts me in mind of some recurrent themes in your work, John, over the years. So, so one is that we have to resist simplistic solutions. The world does not line up in a way which makes it easy for us to understand. Yes. And you know, um, I was talking to Michael Ignatieff the other day for, for, for a podcast I've done, been doing around, uh, around the relationship between crisis and what comes after it. And, and Ignatieff was saying that, you know, Viktor Orban has had a good crisis, you know, so um, some of the despots have done badly and are doing badly. Things don't look great in India. We don't really know what's going on in Russia because it's hidden away. Uh, Bolsonaro is not doing terribly well, but, you know, efficient and effective despots seem to have done okay. Erdogan's done well. Orban has done uh, well. So you've got that on the one hand. And on the other hand, Exactly as you say, it's not enough just to be a formal democracy where power is exchanged at election times. You yeah. have to be a vibrant democracy. So I've heard that Taiwan, for example, one of the reasons it's done so well is because it has a tradition of citizen engagement in technological innovation. And so there wasn't a suspicion there of using things like track and trace because of the relationship the citizens have with their government around technology. Right. And the one situation in America is terrible, it is in some ways mitigated by the fact that it is a relatively decentralized country. And so some mayors and some governors have been able to do something in the absence of federal leadership. So we have to, unfortunately, this crisis doesn't enable us, does it, to, to line things up in easy ways between the good guys and the bad guys, the systems that we notionally support and the systems that we're worried about. No, not all cats are grey and... and um... Uh, not all dogs are Dalmatians, let's say. There is, of course, um, to be added, I think, Matthew, the point that 
the leader of the pack of despotisms as I describe them in detail uh, in this book, which is an anatomy of how power works in these regimes. The leader of the pack is China. Uh, it was the place that hatched the virus. I was actually uh, teaching summer school in Wuhan in the first half of August. Um, it's as if I've been you know, running away from this pestilence. And I can say that on the ground, um, the local scholars and um, journalists and those who are honest would say that this um, virus was hatched under conditions of, um, of great corruption of power. You know, local markets protected by racketeers and the local party uh, protected. When the first news of this uh, virus surfaced among the medics, um, there was, as we know, an attempt to completely silence uh, those medics. Um, and then, so there's an instance of, you know, democratic failure being the source of, 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 of a crisis and of something that has very um, long legs and, and greatly affects people's lives, millions of people's lives. Then the party cracks down and Wuhan, a city of 12 million, is locked down and Hubei province is locked down. The party had done nothing because it had two meetings in January. It didn't want bad news and Chinese New Year was coming. But uh, the, to return to the point, China, um, the largest and most powerful despotism in my analysis is now the first the country that hatched the virus is the first to stand up. While um, significant parts of the world in Latin America, in Europe, and in the United States are down on their knees. So this is a good period for some despotisms. And it's also important to add, I think that um, despots, are, some despots are using this crisis uh, to make gains. Um, of course, uh, we'll see what happens to Bolsonaro and we'll see what happens to Orban. But if you look at, for example, Serbia, Vucic, President Vucic, uh, has all the marks of a despot and trying to build a despotism, you know, on the southeast fringes of Europe and is um, uh, criticizing the EU and saying that our brothers are in China. There are even flag, Chinese flags in, in uh, Belgrade. Um, and meanwhile, on the other end, on the democratic end, we have a, a, a mixture of records. I've mentioned uh, Taiwan and South Korea and New Zealand and Australia. Um, it's possible to include South Africa in that group, by the way. Uh, they have done rather well in containing the pestilence. But the really worrying thing for me is that the largest democracy in terms of power, in terms of political economy, in terms of um, military force, um, the third democratic empire in the history of democracy is showing signs of internal decadence. And it's uh, from the point of view of anybody who considers themselves a Democrat, it's a deeply worrying trend um, in which um, there is a breakdown of uh, democratic institutions and where Washington is leading, I would say, judging by the thinking in terms of the, the book, uh, that number 45, as I call him, 
I don't refer to his name anymore. It's my way of being optimistic, you know, with a bit of luck, there'll be a 46th. If you look at what he's done in, in under four years, uh, it's not only the spreading of fake news and toxic, um, you know, spreading toxic language uh, in public life. Um, and it's not only the demagogy, you know, in the name of the American people and imaginary American people. We know all of that. But it is the taming of Congress. It's, it's the neutering of the judiciary. And it's the running down of accountability mechanisms in the federal uh, bureaucracy. There are still um, handfuls uh, of states that do not have an American ambassador. This is an empire. But, you know, so, so what I think, um, you know, measured in terms of the New Despotism book, is that in the heartlands of democracy, we have some signs, some seriously advanced signs of despotism taking root. And it's happening in the United States. If he's reelected, you can imagine that this degradation of power checking, what I call monetary democracy, uh, will continue. Um, we'll see the degradation of elections. We'll, we'll hear much more of this um, populist talk of the people. Um, uh, there will be um, there will be targeted violence. The gap between rich and poor uh, will will grow, and I suspect that we are going to have uh, intense confrontations uh, from the United States with China. That's a very bleak, dark scenario, and it is described in this book um, towards the end, where, as you rightly uh, said, um, to the point. I don't think in black and white terms. They're not good democracies and, you know, bad despotisms. Um, there's an entanglement uh, that's part of the confusion of our times and part of the contradictoriness of our moment. But all is not lost. And it does seem to me that there are democracies that, have, that are doing well in this crisis that uh, may well um, activate uh, something like a democratic Green New Deal uh, strengthen rule of law, clean up elections, uh, get dark money out of them, um, generally work on empowerment of citizens, improvement of representation. All of that is possible uh, in this crisis, and we see already signs of that, and we see it also at sub-national levels. You know, cities, um, I would say Copenhagen, uh, for instance, are um, places where there's a lot of democratic experimentation going on. One of the warnings in this book is not to think in black and white or catastrophic terms. Um, the, the Spanish um, have a, a wonderful term for this, uh, fracasomania. Fracasomania is this mentality where you say everything is terrible and therefore everything has to be changed. I'm much more pragmatic um, intellectually and politically, and it seems to me that that's the spirit that runs through this book. It's a warning of what is going on in our world. It's a warning that democracies can actually be snuffed out uh, by uh, despotic power. Uh, but it is a call for cleaning up the Augean stables. You know, King Augeus, I think he had 3,000 oxen and he didn't clean the stables for 30 years. And it took a Hercules, you know, to clean out 
well, those stables. It does seem to me a lot of cleaning up of um, democracies is now on the agenda. This is the moment because this is probably as great a crisis of democracy as we've seen since the 1920s and 30s. And we are lucky. Uh, there are, for the moment, there are no Mussolinis and Hitlers. There are no Stalins. Uh, there is a China, but it's, but it's of a different character as a polity. Um, and this, so this crisis is one in which democracies are suffering um, and they're gonna have to come to terms with the China, the new so, China. I mean, you, you wrote the book before the crisis, but- I did. But absolutely, uh, it, it isn't in any way, I don't think, aged by the crisis because what you're you know what, what i took from your argument uh, in essence um was that uh in the kind of battle between despotic and democratic regimes uh, that we needed to understand firstly that despotism was much more robust and effective yeah. in its most effective forms than we like might like to imagine and that the complacency that said well, despotism will always collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, is misplaced. Correct. On the other hand, the, the notion that there is something uncomplicated called democracy that we can extol misses out the fact that the kind of state that democracy has reached in America uh, or in other notionally democratic regimes. And after all, many of these despotic leaders were elected. You know, Bolsonaro was elected and is now trying to, you know, despotism has come out of democracy, which is one of the points that you make. And, and so this is, as you say, this crisis, it comes at a time when, when these models are fighting it out. And I completely agree with you, to use another phrase, that democracy is like a bicycle. If it's not going forward, it's liable to fall over. Yeah. And I'm interested in your view about what is it that we need to be doing with democracy if it is going to be live up to what it's supposed to be, which is in the end the strongest thing it can do. Because one of the other things you want to argue in the book is don't believe that you can defeat despotism through violence. Yeah. You know, in the end, even if it sounds pious what democracy has to do is just be a much better system. Because yeah. in the end, if you genuinely have a much better system, you can hope that the people who live in despotic regimes will eventually say, we want that system, which is how, to impart how democracy spread. So what is it we need to do to our democracies in order that they can once again look like a system that people in despotic regimes would aspire to? You've summarized beautifully the book. Um, and uh, I don't have much more to add. I'm joking. I think um, there are two things there, uh, Matthew. One is uh, your point, um, which I do um, elaborate at length in this book, that these despotisms are not tin-pop tin dictatorships, you know, Mugabe, Zimbabwe, violent, anarchic, um, riddled with arrogance, uh, they are not fascist. Um, actually, these despotisms prefer that the bulk of the population, the middle classes, for example, are locked down in private pursuits, in career, in shopping, in household life, 
you know, under Edoyan, um, the number of shopping malls has increased eight times in less than 20 years. Uh, they are not uh, dictatorships um, of the Latin American kind. They're not autocracies in the sense of, you know, a single ruler. Um, Karen Dawishar, who is a Russian politics scholar, has spoken about Putinism as uh, kleptocracy. I think this is also mistaken because the point is that these despotisms, uh, and certainly the most sophisticated of them, are very well aware about the dangers of abuse of power. They have a whole toolbox to try to win the loyalty of important parts of the population. Voluntary servitude is their thing. And one way they do that is actually to build learning mechanisms into the structures of power. Probably um, the pathbreakers are the Singaporeans. They've had this REACH program since the 1980s. And they do things like tea sessions and, and meetings with stakeholders. Um, the UAE has a happiness program, you know, with happiness public forums um, embedded into the system to find out why it is that people are unhappy. All of them rely on public opinion polling uh, agencies. They, of course, all use elections with a couple of exceptions. All of them have think tanks. So they are smart forms of power and the first recommendation from this book in reply to your question is we should get to know them better we need better to understand them we need certainly to give up the um presumption that you know a good economic crisis will finish them off or um or maybe some saber rattling or maybe you know some diplomatic pressure will bring them tumbling to the ground I think that's um, I think that's a misjudgment, um, and so that's a first priority. The second has to do with the turbulence and the disaffection, the ressentiment that's that's clearly uh, taken root in democracies, and it's been coming for quite some time. You know, the disaffection with political parties, young people don't join. The Corbyn phenomenon was uh, a passing um, uh, moment, I think. Um, the growing gap between rich and poor, uh, the degradation of public life, um, the sense among millions of citizens that their representatives don't represent them properly. I mean, um, and then in civil society, you know, the continuing bullying of women by men, hashtag me too. Um, and there is, of course, a whole bundle of um, ecological problems. I mean, all of these have taken the wind out of the sails of uh, actually existing uh, democracies. And so this crisis comes in one way as a culmination uh, of that trend and a reinforcement of that trend. And it therefore, third point, uh, is it raises it, the question, it puts on the table the question of why is it that we should hang on to the ethos, the language, the institutions of democracy. And what do we actually mean by democracy? Well, in my work, I had a sad life. I did nothing else but write about the past and present and future of democracy. Uh, in my work, I've, I've tried to say that in my generation, uh, a sea change happened in the meaning of democracy. It was once upon a time for my grandparents and great grandparents, 
it meant free and fair elections, you know, with a constitution and, um, of course, a free press. But the central, uh, the central nervous system, if you like, of democracy was elections. In my work, I've tried to show that um, beginning in the late 40s, and I think accelerating um, uh, into our times, uh, this model uh, of democracy, this understanding of democracy has changed, is changing. We don't properly recognize it. We didn't properly have a name for it. I don't want to call it liberal democracy. I think that's too, it always sounds, you know, it's liberal democracy. It always has an American accent. India is not a liberal democracy. Taiwan is not a liberal democracy. What I, what, I, what I think the sea change is, is that democracy means nothing less than free and fair, uncorrupted elections, but something much more. And the something much more um, is the checking and balancing the public scrutiny of power to prevent its abuse wherever it happens. So whether that's in the, the field of corporate power or whether it's in the field of NGOs or whether it's in the field of government. I call this monetary democracy. You know, the public monitoring of power is very, very uh, important. Why is it a good thing? Well, in, in my work, I, I've, um, I've tried, tried to write a history of justifications of democracy. And it might sound strange to say this, Matthew, but uh, more than 90% of them are just exhausted, worn out, or just risible. For instance, if you go back to classical Greece, to Athens, the main justification for democracy was that it made um, that democracy, it was an imperial democracy, militarily great. This is weird. Or if you jump forward in time to say, uh, the anti-slavery movements, the first big social movement of modern times, and you look, as I've done at the pamphlets written by Democrats, they tell you that democracy is a God-given ideal. And when you turn the pages, you see it's a Protestant God, which is very bad news for Muslims and for Catholics and for Jews and, um, uh, uh, and for Hindus and Jains and so on. Um, I do think that there is, in my work, I've tried to, uh, to develop this, uh, to finesse it, to say it in many different ways. I, I think there is one uh, 21st century justification of democracy, uh, which is a little bit Churchillian. You know, Churchill gave this grumpy speech in the House of Commons saying, you know, it's the least worst form of government. You know, it, it doesn't bring um, peace on earth and it, you know, it doesn't turn us into angels, but it's the, it's the least, it's the best we've so far invented. There is some truth in that, except he was thinking about elections and parliamentary rule. I think the 21st century version of it uh, goes something like this, that the best thing about democracy, the key reason why we must not lose it, that its spirit must not die, um, that it not be destroyed by growing gaps between rich and poor, uh, by the corruption of public language, by the infusion of dark money into institutions, that the key reason why it's important is, is that it is the best weapon we have so far invented for preventing the abuse um, of power and often the great evils that come from the hubris that comes from uh, accumulations of unaccountable power. 
John, because we we have nearly run out of time, and and which is very frustrating. But I want to ask you. So I absolutely understand this point, and I absolutely understand the relevance of your concept of monetary democracy in relation to despotic regimes, because in a sense, despotic regimes, in the end, however clever and sophisticated they are, are about concentrating power in an unaccountable way, and democracies, therefore, you're positing as a as an alternative that we should understand democracies fundamentally as a way of holding power to account. Yes. But, and you've got like five minutes of maximum to answer this question. Um, isn't there also, shouldn't we also have more ambition as democracy going back to that Greek, those Greek origins as being a place where decisions are made? And it seems to me that there, the two critical things are firstly devolving more power because it is at the local level that we can genuinely involve citizens and they can get close enough to issues to be able to explore trade-offs and they are themselves implicated in those decisions. When decisions are made locally, we are part of the decision. We have to live out the decision in a way which we don't when it comes to kind of national or federal policy. And then secondly, I am a great champion of deliberative methodologies and the growth of deliberative democracy, not as an alternative to representative democracy, but as a way of addressing the legitimacy deficit in representative democracy uh-huh. and, and demonstrating the capacity of citizens to be able to understand issues that are quite complex in a sophisticated way and come up with great ideas. So I want to add to your monetary democracy the fact that through devolving power and through deliberation, we can also bring back elements of that Athenian model of citizens themselves being involved in the decision making. Now, in your remaining three minutes, tell me whether or not that is part of the way in which we deal with the the battle that you describe in your most recent book. Yeah, I think there is no doubt um, about um, your points. And uh, for example, you've written, uh, Matthew, about and have made a call for a citizens convention uh, of the kind that transformed abortion law in Ireland that that um, legalized um, LGBTI rights and brought a measure of civility to daily life where previously there wasn't. Um, I, I, so all I think, and it's a great deal that you're saying, is that you, you are describing in other words what I'm also talking about when I refer to monetary democracy. You know, if you look at um, the inventions uh, for handling power and involving citizens in the last generation from the end of the 40s. I count uh, over a hundred new institutions that never existed before in the history of democracy. So we don't need to go back to the Greeks uh, because we have inventions like participatory budgeting. We have truth commissions. Uh, we, we have deliberative democratic experiments. We have public forums. Uh, and I think that um, the democratic agenda uh, here on in this crisis is one in which, to repeat, free and fair elections remain really, really important. And that means the reinvention of parties and um, uh, a new genre, a new generation of, of uncorrupted leaders who have the capacity to motivate uh, citizens and so on. 
um, changing electoral laws, but as well building up these institutions to deal with the policy challenges that are now on the agenda. If, if you're going to green a city, um, you can't do it technocratically, or if you try to do that, you will, you will produce disaffection and you will likely, if I'm right, about um, the dangers of abuse of power, you're likely to get things wrong. So democracy is a learning process. Monetary democracy is a complicated learning process. And of course, it, it, it produces a profu profusion of voices, often a cacophony, but that's what democracy is. And uh, it is a clear alternative to these despotisms, ultimately whose weakness is, despite all of the learning mechanisms they institutionalize, um, they cannot allow a free press, they cannot allow open public scrutiny of what I call polygarchs, those who run the system from uh, on high. Uh, and the manifestation of that is this great pestilence. If you look at the hatching of this virus, it is a textbook case of uh, a pestilence spreading with a great global disruption because of the absence of public monitoring and scrutiny and citizen involvement in power. And if you want to look at the alternative, uh, look at little Taiwan, 23 million people, um, very few deaths, uh, life continued to be normal until today, its economy will again rise quite quickly. And there was no emergency rule. There was no clamp, clamp down on, on uh, social uh, freedoms. That's a sign of a democracy which is more than free and fair elections. It's a sign of a democracy where there is this sense among the population and those who are leaders that being accountable, being open to scrutiny is really important for, um, for producing a social solidarity, for ensuring that um, power is not abused uh, with sometimes evil effects. That's my vision. Briefly. Well, it's great that we've ended up with that positive uh, example of Taiwan. Indeed, I'm, I'm speaking to one of the leading figures in developing that Taiwan strategy on my podcast later this week. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. John, thank you for taking right. the time to me, for alerting us to the nature of the choices that we face, the things that are going to play out after every major crisis, then sometimes democracies emerge strengthened and sometimes they emerge weakened. So these are enormous issues and I can highly recommend John's new book The New Despotism which is a roller coaster people use that phrase but it really is a roller coaster right because it's both exhilarating and terrifying so I encourage you to read it and if you have read it you will at least avoid being simplistic um, about uh, the different systems uh, that we see around the world do please keep up with the RSA's channels for updates on further conversations, as well as fresh insights from our policy research team and news from our growing global fellowship. But finally, thank you again to John Keane for joining us and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.